0: I'm an open book, man. Anything you want to throw at me, I'm ready to go. So this passive idea of like, I'm going to play my hands as bluff catchers, when the environment itself is just not bluffing very often, leads to a lot of lost value and a lot of uh, mistakes. I was degenerate because I was arrogant. I didn't know any better. When you start to ignore those things and you only think about the game as hand versus hand, uh, you you become ignorant to the variance. The biggest issue that everybody at this game has from amateur all the way to pro is a lack of purpose.
1: Well, greetings everybody. Welcome to the Rec Poker Podcast, officially sponsored by running Aces Casino and Racetrack. I'm your host Steve Fredland, and that voice that you heard in the intro was professional poker player Matt Berkey. It was my great honor to chat with Matt. Uh, for quite a while about a lot of interesting things, a lot of poker-related stuff, some non-poker-related things, and I just had a great respect for him and how he thinks about the game and how he thinks about life, and I think you're going to enjoy this interview. It was long enough that I actually decided to break it down into two parts, so you'll hear part one this week, and you'll hear part two next week. A couple of quick announcements before we get into the conversation with Matt. Uh, thanks again to everybody who's wearing the patches. Uh, I've been sending a lot uh, out the door, uh, dropping them off with people, mailing them to people. Uh, it's fun to see more and more pictures coming through on Twitter and Facebook of people wearing those. Also, it was interesting, I just had a a good conversation with a gentleman named Justin Cole at the University of Colorado, and he was in town, and I had a chance to play poker with him, and and he's running a a poker class teaching university students about poker, uh, and it was super fascinating. had a chance to sit next to him and play with him for quite a while. Uh, and pick his brain. So I gave him some patches, but uh, I'm excited to kind of see where that goes. I want to continue the conversation with him and see how we can support what they're doing and learn from what they're doing. Uh, just fantastic stuff. So thanks to uh, to Justin for engaging with me that way. And thanks to everybody else who's wearing the patches. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out to Running Aces. We'll run a quick commercial. And then uh, right after that, we'll get into the interview with Matt Berkey. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota. Featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit RunAces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. All right, everybody. Well, uh, as I mentioned, I'm here with uh, poker pro Matt Berkey, Solfer Y Academy. Matt, first of all, man, just
0: thanks for taking the time to be with us. I appreciate you guys having me on here
1: yeah and you're out in Vegas by way of Pittsburgh
0: yeah, uh Vegas was a place that I got taken to kicking and screaming <laughs> uh i was I was the last of my group that was willing to make the move. I tried fought tooth and nail to try to talk everybody out of it.
1: What do you mean the last of your groups? So you had a sort of a poker playing posse there that all moved out, or
0: yeah, so uh in two thousand eight January two thousand eight uh, myself and four of my good friends all decided to take the leap and move out here, so it was me um. The other person that you may have heard of is Brent Hanks, uh, and then three of my high school college buddies: uh, Greg Aversa, Brian Lamanna, and Brandon Garrity, and then uh, Phil Collins, uh, USC Phildo, uh, like crashed on our couch for probably the first year and a half.
1: Okay, and you but you've been out there ever since, and you're you're sort of loving it out there. Or at least that's where the the action's at that you're looking for.
0: Yeah, I, I actually just built a house. I I can't believe it. Uh, I still refer to myself as you know, Pittsburgh being home. When people ask me, like when people say like, are you going home uh, in yeah. reference to like my travels or whatever, I always say, no, I'm going back to Vegas. And uh, I genuinely mean it like home to me is Pittsburgh, but I have more roots here now than, uh, than I would have ever imagined. Yeah.
1: It's hard to believe. I suppose that some time, at some point that's just going to change. Vegas will be considered home. I don't mm-hmm. know, man.
0: I honestly <laughs> don't know. I, if I ever have a family and kids, there's no way I would stay here permanently. Mm. um i would almost certainly have at least uh, a part-time residence back in pittsburgh okay just too hard to be a poker pro though and live outside of vegas i just you know there's a lot about this place that's amazing um but i just wouldn't want to like expose a kid to being raised here yeah Uh, i haven't met too many fundamentally normal vegas people (laughs) there's a handful don't get me wrong Uh, (laughs) right my my personal trainer is actually like one of the most intelligent people I know and he's born and raised here but generally speaking like you know it's a it's a tough environment to grow up in Um, but where else am I gonna play the big game
1: right well if you don't mind if you could go through person by person and let us know who are fundamentally psychologically sane and who are not that'd be fantastic
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I mean honestly that is like something that I consider uh, and maybe arrogantly so but I feel like I'm actually really good at uh, I don't want to use the term reading people because it sounds so like bullshitty, but you know, I feel like I have a good grasp of like who people are through conversation, through interactions and really through playing this game. Yeah.
1: So how did you get started in poker? So, you know, it was that sort of always been part of your life. Did you were you raised playing cards or how did you, how did you get into this game in the first place in Pittsburgh?
0: Uh, it was, it was nothing like that. I grew up really poor. So the idea of gambling wasn't really ever in the forefront of my mind. Um, but my close friend Brian Lamanna that uh, I spoke of that moved out here with me, um, he kind of introduced me to it. And um, you know, as I started to like cut grass for money and things like that in the summertime, we had a little bit to to kick around. And five or six of us would sit around, would play like uh, penny ante games, quarter ante games, things like that. Um, mostly all stud variations, replace the pot type games. And it was fun, and I was naturally good at it. I don't know why. I don't know if it was uh, a natural risk aversion or uh, a lack of risk aversion, yeah. um, you know, versus their more conservative natures or whatever. But uh, I was a very consistent winner, and don't really know what to point to from there. So it piqued my interest. Uh, Holdem kind of like came into our vision when Rounders was released in '98. And uh, we played a weird version of it where you just anteed and everybody saw the flop. Mm. Um, just because we were so used to playing studs. Right. Uh, like stud variations that uh, it didn't really make sense the idea of blinds. Um, and then when I got into college, uh, I, I ne- I've never drank in my life and I played college baseball. So that was obviously oil and vinegar. Yeah. Um, and it was tough. It was freshman year. You know, it's not easy being the kid who's already getting kind of harassed by the upperclassmen and saying like, yeah, by the way, I'm not going to drink till I get sick. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, it's not my thing. Um, But they were actually pretty forgiving and kind of uh, a lot more respectful about it whenever, you know, I just kind of divulged like who I was, why I didn't drink, uh, what my ambitions were. And, uh, you know, the fact that I played cards, like it bridged a gap really quickly with the upperclassmen. They liked that I would gamble with them. And uh, it was a nice social lubricant. So what did you end up going to school for? Uh, I majored in computer science. Okay. Did you graduate then with a degree or? I did. I got, I have a bachelor's in computer science and I think I'm like three credits shy of having a minor in math.
1: Okay. That's right. Nice. So we're, we're very similar that way. I'm a, I'm a math major myself and dad okay. a have been in computer science. So I, I get that whole framework and sometimes that's an interesting approach to poker. Do you, do you find yourself kind of bringing more of an analytical mathematical approach versus Some folks would, you know, maybe focus more on the psychological side of it or.
0: It's, it's weird. Right. So like you're familiar with computer science. uh, Yeah. So you understand the difference between like the person who writes the algorithm versus the programmer. Right. And I was always the algorithm writer. Okay. That's the part I enjoyed. I loathe the programming aspect. You're You're the architect. Yeah. I don't care enough about the small details. So like I'm, I'm very much abstract in my thinking. I'm just, competent at linear thought nice so it's like for me uh it's the opposite with poker like this whole new wave of gto and modeling and uh you know trying to create a systematic approach to the game it's painful to me (laughs) you know it's like i grew up with that with that whole concept of limit poker is a science and no limit poker is an art and that's what gravitated me towards it it's like you just have the ability to do whatever you want whenever you want and uh, sometimes it's just a sheer battle of will and like that was that that really spoke to the athlete in me where it was like okay I just need to be able to outwit these people right. and it doesn't matter what what path I take to do so um, and now you know the game's kind of shifting a little bit so there's a give and take. I I le- Specifically, what we're working on at Solve for Why is trying to marry the two, and we're steering really hard into the actual environmental elements, uh, the the psychological aspect, and trying to figure out a way that we can quantify it a little bit better yeah. so that, you know, we can give a rhyme or reason to the people who uh, kind of like, at, at this moment, are just feel players. I think that that's so
1: critical i mean I'm, I don't know if you've ever done the myers briggs but I, I'm an intp yeah. which basically means that I'm looking for that broad framework give me the give me the concepts give me the hook to hang things on and I think that sounds like kind of what you're talking talking about and we talk to a lot of recreational players and uh, you know we talk about specific hand situations and we'll get guidance from some of the pros that'll say we'll do this in this situation and that's all well and good but I think at the end of the day what we're looking for is give me the overall concept because I'm not I'm not going to always be able to remember what I'm supposed to do with pocket forwards under the gun with a facing a three right. bit. I mean, right. you know, so what are the concepts? What are those things that we can hang on to and, and kind of in, in, incorporate into our game? That's what it sounds like. Maybe you're you're marrying that with the psychology with with Insolve for Why.
0: Well, a lot of the the issue that we found and the reason why we we came to be is because we thought there was a big sore spot in the market. Um, the barrier of entry of learning right now is just so great. That if I were a recreational player who is uh, who enjoyed the game of poker, I'd be very turned off. Once I did a quick Google search, uh, it's so daunting. You know, it feels like Correct. you need some sort of like high level math guru or 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 an engineer in order to figure this stuff out. And it's not that way. The game is really beautifully simple. Um, so, like, what we're trying to figure out is uh, why everybody's buying into this bullshitty micro learning process that everyone's being fed. Right. See, the see, idea. Well, what, what do you mean by micro learning? And that's the, so, so like the, the idea of studying strictly hand histories and knowing what you're supposed to do with pocket fours under the gun. Right. right? What does that matter? If you don't have a larger framework, if you don't have a, a big picture, more abstract approach of, of understanding like how pocket fours interchanges with five, six suited, which interchanges now with, uh, you know, your suited aces. And basically like the the whole idea of not know, not needing to know what to do with a specific hand, but instead having a purpose or an objective that you want to accomplish with all hands.
1: That's uh, so good. <laughs> Man, I'm excited now. Let, where do I sign up? Let's let's go. And, and we'll okay. just, you know, we'll get into some more stuff, but, you know, real quickly, you know, the Sulfur Y Academy, you know, where do people get more information on that? We'll kind of revisit this at the end, but sure. you know, we've teased it a little bit. So if people are already listening to this and kind of want to Google a little bit, yeah, uh, where, where do they find info while they're listening? Uh, to
0: it? It's it's just for why academy.com. Um, and we're working on a, a lot of expansion. So uh, we're actually going to be launching a subscription service next month, um, where we'll be doing a lot of you know this, I, I guess, uh, melding between the systematic modeling versus like the, the, the more feel approach and quantifying that a little bit. Um, and then we also have a live academy where people come for three days, they learn from us, we run them through a workshop where they just listen to theory talk uh, for a portion of the day, then they get to play for three hours on an RFID table. Uh, you know, All whole cards are revealed while Christian and I uh, are in the back room kind of giving our analysis as to what they're doing well, what they could do better. Uh, things along those lines.
1: Yeah, I was looking at some of that online, and I was just drooling over how valuable that would be as a player to actually play the way you play and have that real-time analysis.
0: Heat. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. Um, one of the big things, and you know, it's for everybody. That's that's the thing that I think that kind of gets lost. Uh, we miss out on a lot of the the high-level players because of pride, and um, you know, nobody really wants the help, I guess. Because the 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 teaching market right now is so bullshitty, it's so much of you're having problems with jacks. Let me tell you how to play it better. Here's an article. Right, right. Um, and the same goes for like the low level players. It's like, well, if you're open to the feedback and criticism and just go in and understand, like everybody in this game makes mistakes from top to bottom, then you know you can derive a lot of value from just being told, like, hey, maybe uh, instead of doing this you should try to obtain this ins, uh, objective instead. So let's just shift your focus of what your goal is. And now all of a sudden, all these hands might become a lot easier to play. That's so good. I
1: think I think I, I found that too, is, as I've talked to a number of players that are trying to get better. I think one of the biggest barriers to improvement is not having a humble posture toward your own game. Uh, just sort of assuming I know what I'm doing. I don't need the help. You know, I just need yeah. to get more lucky or something. Yeah, I mean, a it's, posture it's, that says, you know, I, I need help, help me out here.
0: It's that old adage of like, you know, poker's like sex. Everyone thinks they're the best, but the majority of people actually suck. <laughs> and it makes sense, right? Like how ludicrous to think that we're just born with the ability to, uh, to solve these complex problems right? naturally, right? Uh, the, the reason why everybody was able to derive that they're talented in either elements, I guess, is due to lack of comparison, right? Mm-hmm. You only need to be outwitting the next opponent. And uh, when the game first popularized in 2003, outwitting the next opponent just meant being the smartest guy in the room. Right. right? Or, or the, the the least dumbest, I guess. <laughs> really, right? Because the rankings weren't that tough. I mean, everybody was just pretty much playing by the rules. Bluffing was a non-element. Um, you know, nobody had any clue what was going on. We're a lot further along now. I mean, there's artificial simulations that uh, are just... The, the, the thing is, is, like that sounds scary, but really all they're doing is showing a peek into the window of how vast this game is and how far away it actually is from being solved. Hmm. So I, I think like a lot of the elite community is driving fear into the rest of the poker world that the game is on the verge of death and you know these machines are going to make it uh, rendered useless to, to try to play ever again. But you're still battling other people. Exactly. So it's still just a matter of outwitting your next opponent. Totally
1: agree. So, so if, if you kind of look back at your, at your life now in Pittsburgh and you kind of got into the game a little bit, uh, obviously you're, it's, it's a long way from, you know, cutting grass and playing some nickel games to, sure. you know, solve for Y Academy and training all these people. So I, I'm curious a little bit about the journey along the way. Like, like at what point did you have a, a big score? Did you have, uh, something that sort of transitioned you to say, well, maybe I can do this more as a career. Uh, did, did you ever take on sort of a, a regular job, quote unquote, after school, or did you go right into poker? Kind of give me a little flavor for sure. how did you move from, man, maybe I'm good at this nickel dime game to this could actually be something I do.
0: Sure. Um, I never even interned. I never wanted to be a computer <laughs> scientist. Uh, I got into it because I had an aptitude for math and it was a popular career field in 2000. It was, yeah. there, was a big, there was a big need. So my advisor was just like, you should do this. You'll be good at it. And you'll get paid a lot. And it was like, okay, I mean, yeah. I'm going to play professional baseball. So I don't care what I major in. Um, and that was really my focus. I just wanted to play ball more than anything else on earth. And where, where did you go to school for, for ball? Uh, I started at Allegheny College in Meadville, Pennsylvania, yeah. which is a small D3 school. Yeah. Um, much more regarded for their uh, academics than their athletics. Uh, and I actually got cut after my freshman season, um, so I took a red shirt for that year. Transferred up to the seventy North seventy nine, went to Erie, PA, uh to Gannon University, which was D two, and uh, ended up starting for four seasons. Sweet. Okay. Cool. Um, but yeah. Oh, anyway. Yeah. Back to the 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 poker thing. Um, by the time I was a junior, um, you know, I, I was I was just making money regularly at it. And uh I stopped going to class somewhere middle of the way through my sophomore year, really even before poker became an issue. I just kind of understood um the value of time and that especially with like computer science and things like that, this can all be pretty self-taught. So I used my 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 professors uh as more of mentors than I did as, you know, day to day instructors. And I would just show up the first day of class and say, like, listen, um, i 'm very busy trying to make it as a baseball player i 'm spending eight to ten hours a day in the gym. like this is my most important thing in life, and I know you don 't want to hear that, but uh, i 'm not going to come to your class i 'm going to do all the assignments i 'm going to show up for midterms and finals. If you feel the need to dock me for uh, for abusing your attendance policy, so be it um, But you know if you feel like i 'm performing, please don 't take that ten percent off my grade. <laughs> And you know they would all. It all started with them giving me some sort of threat of like how I'm ruining my college life, yada yada yada. And then I would just you know go spend a little bit of time at their office hours once a week or so, uh, make sure that I was all caught up. And I ended up graduating with like a three two. And nice. you know that's nothing to brag about. I could have done far better. I just didn't care. Um, and the whole reason I'm setting that up is because that's pretty much what frames out poker. Uh, when that was introduced to me my junior year. Now, all of a sudden, I saw uh, an immediate means to end uh, where I can make like enough money to get by in the short term so that I could continue to pursue my baseball career. Uh, and that's what I did for the first 18 months or so after graduation. I would just travel the Midwest, go to these uh, these tryouts, and play like 5'10", like Greektown in Detroit or <laughs> Turning Stone, New York, whatever. Um, and it, it all culminated with... Uh, my first tournament score at Turning Stone, I chopped an event for 15K. A few weeks later, I ended up uh, getting second back-to-back nights in the Party Poker Nightly, and suddenly I had a $60,000 bankroll. Yeah. So and it just sort of like, this, that
1: just set you up, said, all right, this is what I'm doing, and I'm pretty convinced.
0: Yeah, it was, it was just like kind of the dominoes fell. Uh, that happened, and I went to a handful more tryouts, and it was the same process every single time. Make it to the final rounds, only for them to tell me, you don't throw hard enough. You're too old at the time. I'm like 22, 23 ancient. Yeah. And everybody else, I mean, baseball years, that's like, you know, you're past your prime. Hmm. Um, and everybody else is like 18 to 21. It's like, well, you're only throwing like low eighties. Uh, you're only six foot tall. You know, we like your build, you're short, you're stock, you have huge legs, but I just don't see you progressing any further. Like, sorry, we can't sign you. And after enough of those no's, with uh you know multi thousand dollar paycheck waiting for me at the casino, it's like, I guess this is it now.
1: How how tough was that for you to kind of finally say it's just not gonna happen?
0: Uh the irony is that like my self-sabotage in the moment kind of allowed me to transition out of need. So I took that sixty thousand and ended up sitting with it at like, I don't know, five, six, seven tables of twenty five fifty PLO. Which I wasn't even good at at the time. It just all started with like I didn't know how to manage money or business. I had never seen more than like a few thousand dollars in my life, right? And then all of a sudden I have piles of it. So one night I was just playing like two four heads up PLO, which I was pretty good at back in the day, um, and I was stuck. So I jumped up to five ten, then ten twenty, and then I, I couldn't get heads up action any bigger than that. So suddenly I'm playing like full green twenty five fifty, adding a table, adding a table. Mm. Next thing I know, I dust off like. 45,000 of it. Hmm. Uh, and once I ran all the accounts dry, I like hit sheer panic. I felt like, you know, I could have done so much with that money and I just like it off. So I immediately sent $5,000 towards my student loans, leaving myself with like only 10 K. And now it's just like, what have I done? This is, right. this is madness. Um, and throughout that whole process, I'd already signed up to be a part of an Arizona winter league in Yuma, Arizona. So it was like my last-ditch Hail Mary to go to this Winter League where, like, 100 ball players would uh, be competing for, like, 15 or 20 contracts in um, various uh, independent leagues. I go out there, have a great time. Uh, I do really well, but I'm semi-injured. And same thing happened. I came down to, like, the final 25 for the cuts, and I was one of the five who didn't get signed. Mm. Um, but in that process, there was uh, a casino in, on the border of Yuma, Arizona, and California. And they had just introduced No Limit. And they ran their very first, it was called Paradise Casino. They ran their very first No Limit tor- tournament ever, January 29th, 2007, <laughs> which happened to be my birthday. Ah. also happened to be the only weekend the entire 45 days I was down there that we had off. <laughs> and so I go, it's a $500 buy-in, $500 um, add-on. And you can add on, either immediately or uh, at the end of the registration. So I just take it immediately and I go coast to coast. I just chip lead this event from start to finish. It was a hundred people. I won it without any effort. And the Mm -hmm. beauty of it was it was a guaranteed 20 K to first place. They they didn't guarantee the prize pool. They guaranteed first place. So it it ends up only being like uh, a 40 or 50 K prize pool. 20 X on your, yeah. Yeah. Almost, almost half of it goes to first place. (laughs) <laughs> um, so suddenly, you know, I'm, I'm back in the black and I have functional money again. Baseball clearly just isn't going to work out. Um, and by the end of that summer, I, I just like made the the transition full-time into, uh, into poker.
1: So what, I mean, what do you think the keys are to that? I mean, what do you think the, other than just sort of naturally being good at poker, just kind of getting it, you know, obviously you, you had success early. You seemed like you, you know, yeah, you went up and down a little bit and then you had success again, but. You know, where can you look back and say, man, here is why it worked for me to be able to sort of jump into this as a career right away. This is what I did well, or, you know, what can you, can you sort of rationally think about what are those things? What were the keys for your success early?
0: Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, it's obviously going to be a lot different than uh, what people are going to be able to accomplish now just because the environments were so different. Like I said, yeah. you just need to be the smartest guy in the room. Um, but I think, I've always had this kind of predisposition to having a disregard for money. Um, And in that example I gave, it it, it demonstrates like a little bit of the degeneracy whenever you're ignorant, right? I wasn't degenerate because I had a gambling problem. Like I've never really bet sports. I've never fired off in the pit. That's never been a thing. It was, I was degenerate because I was arrogant. I didn't know any better. I literally thought that, well, if I'm the smartest guy in my local card room, then I'm also the smartest guy who plays online at any stake and it's just a barrier of money. So I have money now, so let's go. And you know, I didn't understand variance at all. I didn't understand how the inner workings of this game really matter. Um, so eventually like I learned and I learned the hard way, but now I think you can learn like the easy way you can, you can study these kinds of things and it's, it's not a means of, you know, trying to emulate a bot or anything like that. It's just more so understanding how equities work and, you know, what a range is and how it intertwines with an opponent's range because when you start to ignore those things and you only think about the game as hand versus hand, uh, you you become ignorant to the variance and you become arrogant to the fact that we think we can control those types of things. Variance is actually fixed. Uh, People think it's variable, but it's it's very fixed in this game. It's predetermined, really. in the sense that uh, most people are gonna adhere to certain, uh, I guess, like qualifiers, uh, as to like the hands that they're gonna play and how they're gonna play them. Uh, the volatility is what we actually have a lot more control over. You know, you can play a lot less volatile of a style if you just choose to be pretty risk-averse and play passively and you know things like that. You, you won't ever risk much, but you won't ever win much either. Right. Um, so I think for people getting into the game now, it's it's just really getting over that first hump of learning. Um, you know, once you once you're able to kind of understand this game the same way that you would understand like any high risk business, uh, be it day trading or um, investing or you know basically anything. If you, if you understand this game from the vantage point of like a startup, like let's pretend it's a lemonade stand, and you need to know what your material goods are. You need to know what your customer base is, what the price is, et cetera, et cetera. If you can start to correlate that over to poker, uh, you know, price being bets, customers being opponents, um, things along those lines, when you can start to th- think differently about the game, it becomes a lot easier to then uh, become a winner, I guess.
1: So how would you recommend, because there's a lot of players out there, and this is really good. I think it's really about taking the 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 micro and making it macro and saying, okay, how does this all fit together? Where do we hang these hooks? So there's a lot of players that I've encountered that some are brand new and some have have been playing for many years. And they would say, I just really don't know how to start building a strategy. Like I, you know, I just played for fun and now I want to be more serious, but I'm still because of how I learned the game, I'm just kind of playing my hand against their plan that I, and I know there's more range versus range and those are more strategic things I should be thinking about, but I don't really know how do I sort of, um, I guess, deconstruct my, my current game and reconstruct a brand new game with a better framework. I mean, yeah. uh, what advice would you give to those folks that are saying, I just need to
0: kind of recreate my game? So that's that's the challenge because uh, I don't have a great answer for that. That's why I created self Why um, When I was, you know, getting to the point of, because I, I was just a randomizer too. I, I was just a field player. I was I felt more qualified than the next guy to look my opponent in the face and say like, "Mm, you didn't do it this time and then make the correct decision. And that worked for a really long time until the general population stopped just randomizing themselves and they started to construct more strategy. And most of them are, are constructing incorrectly, right? They're just doing like what you just spoke to. They're, they're putting a bunch of band-aids together and calling it a strategy where they have a better idea of what to do with Jackson, a single race pot now. Um, and with enough with enough of that, the most intelligent of them will accidentally fall into a strategy construct. <laughs> you know? But it's like when we developed Solve for Why, it was exactly that. It's like, what do you do if you don't know where to begin and there is no real entry point? It's like, well, I guess we're just gonna have to create one because it's not that there isn't any great tool. Like in my opinion, something like Run at Once, watching those videos. It's fantastic if you already know what you're doing and knowing know what to look for, right? Because now you can weed through all the bullshit, and you can say like, "Oh, this coach is really good at at playing, but he's not necessarily the best coach out there because all he's doing is telling me his thought process, and that's not helpful." Uh, versus like Galfond, who can show me start to finish how he arrived at every single decision. That that seeing that process mm. will now help me develop a process, right? I I think it just begins with being able to sit down and honestly set out what your objective is. So, what you actually hope to accomplish, both in the short term and the long term. And then, you know, begin by trying to find these big picture, real world examples that you're familiar with that you can try to parallel over to poker. Like I said, uh, starting a business is a great approach. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think that helps, like, reframe exactly what you're supposed to be doing anytime you sit at the table and are dealt two cards. Yeah. But, you know, to your point, there aren't really any great next steps. Uh, I think you have to ask for help. You have to seek help. And uh, finding proper outlets to do so, uh, even if it's just a good forum where you can bounce ideas off of other people that you respect, that you consider peers, uh, I think that that's like a really great starting point.
1: Yeah, I think that's great. And I think any time that can involve, whether it's your peers or a, a formal study, but just maybe this is where solve for why it comes from, but just this idea of really knowing what you're trying to accomplish, you know, mm-hmm. really starting with the end in mind. And I do think people fail to do that. You know, the, the, the end in mind is I want to win this hand, right. Versus, you know, I want to win this tournament or I want to have the highest ROI or whatever it is. And I think, uh, I think people really struggle with that question. I actually recently just spoke to a, a, a network of educators. I don't work in education, but I, I spoke to them about this too, about you really need to know what are you actually trying to do? Because It's so easy to get lost in the day-to-day decisions of what you're trying to do or this specific hand or this specific scenario. And I think, you know, being able to keep the end in mind to say, well, ultimately, what are we trying to accomplish here? Is something that's very difficult for people to do. So I think whatever, you know, whatever you're talking about, as far as being able to build a strategy, build a concept, you've got to start with the end in mind.
0: Yeah. I I parallel it to uh, weight training a lot where it's very easy to show up in the gym with a ton of motivation and saying like, that's it. This is the day that I begin. This is where the transformation starts. And then you walk into the gym and you're just so overwhelmed by all the equipment that you're unfamiliar with, by all the people who are bigger and in better shape than you, uh, by by the amount of like, just sheer, uh, I guess, like visual trauma yeah. <laughs> that you're kind of taking in where it's like, this is really hard and I don't have an education in it. I don't know where to begin. It's like, well, you should, you should begin by getting a trainer that you trust, right? Because they're going to ease that process. They're going to step you through it one by one. And if it's a good trainer, what they're not going to do is tell you what to do. But instead, they're going to demonstrate why you're doing what you're doing with a bigger picture in mind. That way, you'll be eventually be able to break off from them being your crutch and you'll be able to start to do this on your own. You'll start to be, develop your own game plan, I guess, moving forward. That's so good. So, thinking about you know all the play
1: that you do, and I, I know you do, you do some tournaments, you do a lot of cash. you you're kind of a you, you do both of those things, but and I know the games that you play are, are bigger games than a lot of us are playing. But as you look uh, at the situations that you're involved with as you're playing the game, like what are those ex- mistakes that you're seeing less experienced players making on a regular basis? Like you you know the things that they do that you can immediately say, oh, they're less experienced, or those things that just keep coming up where you're like. That is, that is such an unprofitable play sure. or something that's super exploitable? What are those things that you see most common?
0: It's two things. Uh, first and foremost, the biggest the biggest issue that everybody at this game has from amateur all the way to pro is a lack of purpose. And that just speaks back to like what we were talking about, defining your objective and trying to create a strategy around it. Uh, too many people are just reacting. They don't have foresight to understand that the deck is fixed. There are a set a number of cards in there and you can anticipate... Uh, what those turns and rivers are going to be before they come. So you should not be caught off guard when the Ace of Spades rolls off on the turn just because it feels like it's the worst card in the deck. You should already have a predetermined uh, reaction to the quote-unquote worst card in the deck falling because you understand that it's helping your opponent. Uh, well, sorry, let me rephrase that. You should understand that if it's the worst card in the deck, it's because it helps your opponent, not just because it hurts you. Mm. Right? So when you have kings, sure, the ace on the turn is a bad card because it hurts you, but does it actually help your opponent? Right, And if you start to think logically about it like that, now all of a sudden fear is kind of reduced. And that's really uh, the framework in which the vast majority of the people uh, are playing this game because there's money involved. Fear drives decisions. And... Uh, we talk a lot about this in uh, our online courses, the The idea of fight or flight and how imprecise people are at making high-level decisions when thrust into a fight or flight stage. Right. Um, you know, what a lot of people don't understand is fight or flight is actually driven by our limbic system, which is what controls our emotions as well. So it's really difficult to make logical choices when your emotional brain is what's being engaged. Your, your uh, amygdala is firing at a at hundred miles an hour. Right. And the idea is that the reason why our brains set up this way is because when actually presented uh, a, a life or death situation, you don't need to make a logical choice Right, you need to make the most readily available choice that will keep you alive. But uh, the problem is, is that the environment of poker creates that sort of chaos that emulates a life or death situation because we we put such high value on money and the reality is, like you're not in a life death situation at all, and we all know that feeling how how relieving it feels to go broke. And I, I will
1: admit, I've I've been in tournament situations where a situation comes up, and it feels the same as the emotion I had in Rwanda when an elephant was chasing us. Sure, <laughs> it is right. that's exactly what you're right. talking about. It's that and feeling the, like, oh my god, I got to do something. I'm I'm almost dead here.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the relief you feel when you <laughs> escape the elephant is the same relief you feel, even though there's a <laughs> sadness attached to it it's the same relief you feel whenever you bust an event. So true. Right? It's like, God, short stacking that event was way more stressful than the sadness that I feel after having just busted now. Hmm. Um, So, you know, I'm of the opinion that like we can program this, we can train it. We can, we can help re-engage our logical conscious mind to prevent shifting into fight or flight. Because again, it is an emotional response, right? So uh, we're the ones that get to dictate and filter what we identify as a threat. And if we can recondition uh, our fear response to be, you know, more courageous, and recognize that like turn and river cards aren't going to do anything to impact our life, then all of a sudden, like we start to make a lot more logical decisions, uh, we're a lot more sound in in these situations, and that's 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 really key to uh to to mistake removal.
1: So, how, how do you see that kind of manifest itself at the table? And you're saying, uh, you know, I feel like. Less experienced people have a sense of, or lack a sense of purpose. They're, they sort of haven't uh, reconditioned their fear factor. Uh, How do you see that sort of manifest itself in situations as you're playing?
0: Bluff catching. And it's, it's so ironic because the environment as a whole, especially at, at the, the, the levels that your listeners are playing at are under bluffing at such a massive, massive rate. That the idea of check calling for more than one street profitably is almost non-existent. Um, you could, as a as a very quick band aid fix, right right here right now on air, you could probably never check call the river again with less than, uh, you know, a, a top three qualifying hand, and you would make money just by simply check folding rivers at a way way higher rate. You would immediately begin to print money because. Um, what happens is the whole environment is doing the same thing. Everybody is taking on this risk-averse style, and what it's hap- or what it's leading to is that when people actually bet, they just have it, and when people are checking, they have just enough to check call. So a lot of hands that are are way more incentivized to keep initiative and um, you know force their opponents to react with are actually shifting into check calls, and what it's allowing for is. Um, everybody's realizing the fullest amount of their equity. So uh, what I mean by that is anytime two hands enter a pot, each of them have an equity split in this pot. So if you have an overpair and they have six high, well, they're not drawing dead. We've, we've seen this time and time again, like runner-runner is, is a thing, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So like, let's say somebody has five, six high and you have pocket kings and the board is jack, deuce, seven. Um, well, you might be uh, a roughly 90% favorite here. But if, uh, if you're just always checking to call, what will happen is the six high will very rarely bluff and just check and check. And the, t- the 10% of the time that they actually make the best hand, you pay them off to the fullest. Right. But you don't earn any money the 90% yeah, of the time 90. that they have nothing. Right. Now change this to you have ace-king high and they have six high well, you're still like a 70% favorite. But again, if you're just checking to check call because you have what you feel to be a bluff catcher and they're not bluffing with their six high, well, they're just realizing they're 30% over and over and over again. And then every time that they get there, you're paying or you're paying some percentage of the time that they get there. Um, So this passive idea of like, I'm going to play my hands as bluff catchers when the environment itself is just not bluffing very often leads to a lot of lost value and a lot of uh, mistakes. Okay, well, that's it for today. Thanks so much to Matt
1: for taking the time. A reminder, we will have part two of the interview next week. So hold your horses. You'll hear more from Matt uh, next week. Also, again, thank you to Running Aces for sponsoring the program. Make sure you tell other people about us. If you want a patch, let me know. If you have feedback, ideas for topics, uh, hand situations you want to run through, uh, please let me know. We do have a number of great interviews coming up over the next several weeks. We're going to be also hearing from, besides Matt Berkey, you'll hear from Jonathan Little, Dr. Tricia Cardner, Jordan Young, Christian Soto, uh, a number of folks that we have lined up. So uh, stay tuned for those things. Uh, and as always, reach out to me on Facebook, Twitter, email, stevefredlund at gmail.com if you got anything you want to chat about uh, regarding rec poker. With that, take care, y'all. See you on the felt.